The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. We continue our series uh, on Tuesday morning, inviting different graduating seniors uh, to speak and bring God's word to us. This morning we have the privilege of hearing from Wes Holmes. So Wes, come and bring us God's word. Well, it's nice to be here with you all this morning and just to open up God's word with you. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them up to the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Since the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word for the truth in it and the truthfulness of it. Lord, and how honest David is in this psalm about his sin and depravity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning from it, that we would be built up and encouraged from this word, and God, that you would give me uh, the words to speak and give us all, including myself, the ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Confession is one of the hardest things for us to do. And it's even harder to do it well. It just doesn't come naturally to us to admit that we've done something wrong without trying to at least 
pass off some of the blame or kind of downplay the nature of what we've done. Equally problematic is our frequent blindness to our own sin. It's hard for us to see it. And so we can't even start to confess unless we know it's there. Have you ever had an argument with a friend or with a spouse where you were so sure that you were right, so you're going to do everything in your power to convince them, to show them that that's the case at at any cost? There was one time not too long ago when I was trying to convince my wife that studying the intricacies of systematic theology was a good and important thing for her to do. Unfortunately, she did not immediately agree. So I proceeded to explain to her why a good Christian should be in, you know, in, interested in these things, and she should really work on that a little bit. That was a bad move, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but in some ways, I felt justified in what I said. Yeah, I want her to know the Bible, I want her to know theology, but I had been blind to my own sin. And in those, time, in those moments when we do that kind of thing, we're always doing more harm than good. My wife was hurt. I was frustrated, and honoring God was the last thing on my mind. Pride is at the root of all these kinds of situations in our lives. King David, interestingly, is called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel. He was the king of Israel, but in his sin he was blinded by his pride and his arrogance, and he committed adultery and murder, breaking both the sixth and seventh commandments during the time when kings were supposed to be out at war. It's not until the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin in a loving yet incisive rebuke that David realizes the the gravity of what he's done. This is the situation surrounding the writing of this psalm, Psalm 51. King David was suddenly struck with the conviction of his sin and he was compelled to confess to the Lord and to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit and then to offer a sacrifice of praise to the God of his salvation. So there are three points uh, that I'd like to point out in the text that we can take a look at. Um, First of all, our sin. Second, God's spirit. And third, a pleasing sacrifice. So sin, spirit, sacrifice. Nice alliteration for all of us. Uh, With these three points, I hope that we see that as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first point, our sin. The very first thing David does in verse 1 is he pleads for mercy. Actually, the Hebrew word is better translated, be gracious to me, O God. David is begging the Lord to treat him favorably because he knows that he deserves only the Lord's righteous anger for the things that he has done. The grace he is looking for is the goodness of God toward him, despite the fact that he has broken his law and he has earned God's wrath. David has clearly reached the point where he recognizes that he is a sinner, a sinner approaching a holy God and can therefore only receive his hearing, a hearing from him, and a gracious condescension of God. So that is a huge first step, one that it's easy for a lot of us to miss. We need to admit and recognize where we are before the Lord. It's all too natural for us to come to God with a sense that we've already arrived, and we just simply need him for some some minor things here and there. I know an example in my own life is how difficult it's been for me to make a regular time to spend with God in his word and in prayer, 
Uh, that's been a challenge for me because I often feel like I've pretty much got my life together. I don't need anything from the Lord right now, thanks though. Doing all right. Or if I do eventually make the time for devotions, I congratulate myself with my own religiosity and move on to more pressing matters. My tendency is to ignore my need for God's mercy until someone comes to me and points out my sin or I fall so far away from him or stray from his way that my guilt just overtakes me. Maybe some of you can relate to this. But notice that the basis for David's plea for mercy is not according to what I have done. It is not his own righteousness or his own level of repentance, but the steadfast love of the Lord, which serves as the basis for mercy. Be gracious to me according to your steadfast love, he says. It is only according to God's covenantal faithfulness to his promise uh, to the children of Abraham that David has the grounds to ask God for God's grace. The second part of verse 1 is a parallel saying, according to your abundant mercy. So again and again he's saying, Lord, this is you from you and not from me. What this is teaching us is that you and I, as well as every other sinner in the world, have no place with God apart from his own gracious and merciful character and covenant. But based on God's covenant of grace, David boldly seeks the Lord's forgiveness. And so can we. Three times in this section, David asks for cleansing. He asks God to blot out, to wash, and to cleanse him from his transgressions, his iniquity, and his sin. It's striking, too, that David speaks this way in his request because this is exactly how God revealed himself to Moses when his glory passed before him in Exodus 34, 7, when the Lord said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The same three words. David knows that the Lord is a God who forgives all kinds of sin. And that, that gives him the courage to bring his confession to the Lord. And that's why we too, as the book of Hebrews says, can come with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In verse 3, we feel the weight of the burden that David was carrying when he saw how guilty he was in his sin. He says, Oh, I know my sin, and it is before me continually. Many of us know what it's like to feel the crushing burden and the load of guilt that comes upon us when we have sinned against God, whether it took the form of falling into an, a habitual sin or losing your temper with a loved one, or even failing to honor the Lord as you should in your seminary studies. At these times, all you can think about is just how miserably you failed the Lord and how dirty you are in your sin. Our sin makes us unfit for the presence of God. And like David, we can sense this. We can sense this at times. Yet David knows that his guilt is not merely a subjective experience, but it's actually an offense against God himself. Verse 4 says, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's right to point out the fact that his sin is first and foremost a transgression of and a want of conformity to God's law, and that is no small matter. 
David is the king of Israel, and he has personally offended the Lord, the God of all things visible and invisible. And David points this out because it proves the Lord is righteous and pure, even though David, his anointed one, is full of sin. God is the sovereign Lord, but is in no way responsible for David's sin. And as a just judge, he had every right to mete out justice right then and there. But this justice would not only be for his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah, but for the sin that plagued him ever since he was born. Verse 5 is a text that has been historically used to defend the doctrine of original sin, and rightly so. David knows that his sins of adultery and murder go much deeper than merely the external acts themselves. There is an infection in David's nature that even before he was born, his heart was corrupted in all his desires. Sadly, this is the case for all of mankind ever since Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, and we all have inherited the guilt and corruption of his sin and are, as the book of Ephesians says, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our sin is much more of a problem than many of us often care to admit. In the next breath, though, David contrasts his sin with the fact that the Lord delights in a heart that's characterized by truth and wisdom. Not only has God given David his natural revelation, but also his own word, his special revelation of truth and wisdom in the scriptures, yet even still, David did not heed God's words, and he went about things his own way, which in a way makes his sin all the worse because he knew what he was going against. Hence his continued plea for mercy in verse 7. He continues to plea with the Lord. He writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David's desire, his longing, is to be purged with hyssop and that brings to the text the idea of the ritual cleansings of Israel. And even more clearly, it's reminiscent of what the Israelites used to spread the blood of the Passover lamb on the lintel when God's judgment passed over in Egypt. David is looking for the kind of washing that ultimately can only be found in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the Passover lamb was meant to point us to the true lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone can make the foulest and most prideful sinner clean. This is good news for you and for me today. And it makes sense that David would long to be joyful again because his sins had so overwhelmed him that he had almost become deaf to the reality of God's salvation. But with the Lord's forgiveness, he knows that there is healing, that there is restoration. And there is great joy to be found in knowing that our Savior has cleansed us from our sin. And so we too can know the joy of God's forgiveness, the relief of knowing that God no longer holds our sins against us, and that in his grace he has loved us and adopted us, brought us in to his own family. And that's good news for those of us who are downcast this morning because of our sin. The Lord lifts us up from the heap of our filth. But for those of us who don't find ourselves rejoicing in the Lord and his grace, it's probably because we're more often rejoicing in our own perceived greatness. As seminarians, you and I may not have actually committed adultery or actually murdered someone like David did, 
But isn't it interesting that our Lord Jesus speaks about both the sixth and seventh commandments in terms of what happens in our hearts? Looking with lust and hating a brother are equivalent to breaking these commands in the sight of God. So we need to examine our hearts and see the foul stench that lives within. We have to see the depth of our sin in order to see our need for the grace of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must not underestimate the heinousness of our own sin, lest we underestimate the greatness of our Savior's grace to us in Christ. So that's our first point, our sin. Second point, God's Spirit. If you look at the verses that follow, isn't it interesting just how similar these next few verses are to Psalm 104, uh, which says, I'll quote from it, referring to God's creatures, um, that when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, or their spirit, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. But in our text, it's interesting that David asks for the Lord's face to hide, not from him, but from his sin. Putting it to death once and for all, blotting it out from the records in his books. It is only when the Lord sends forth his spirit that a clean heart can be created in David. David's request is for nothing less than a new creation work that only the Spirit of God can do, that only he has the power to do. Only the Lord, the God who created heavens and earth, can create such a change in someone who is so rotten with sin. And it's by the Holy Spirit that he does this. Notice the repetition of that word, spirit, ruach, in these verses. The point being made here is that the only way that there can be change in our spirits is if God's Spirit works that change within us. We can't do it ourselves. You and I, like David, can only be cleansed from our sin by the Spirit's application of the saving work of Christ. Interestingly, the Spirit is the very one who convicted David of his sin in the first place. So from beginning to end, we are completely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. And now, instead of David giving himself a pep talk, or simply determining to do better from now on, he rightly prays. He prays to the one who alone forgives his sin and gives him the strength to turn from it. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark of God's covenant love for his people. It's his abiding presence with them and for them. And the Spirit of God will give us strength to turn from our sin and to enjoy his presence, even though we are still filled with all kinds of iniquity. And even though we have all sinned against God in more ways than we even know, he does not desire to get away from us or to be removed from us like an offended friend or someone might want to you know, get just be away. He has promised to be our God just as we are his covenant people. And sometimes we may feel like the presence of God is nowhere near, but he's always with us. He's loving us. He's encouraging us. He's strengthening us even in the midst of our sin. And he's calling us to return to himself so that we might know the joy of his salvation, that it might be restored to us. It's God's Spirit who convicts us of our sin and who gives us the grace to believe in his promises and to receive his forgiveness, and he also gives us the strength to walk in his way in grateful response. So our sin and the Spirit of God who helps us and grants us forgiveness, now a pleasing sacrifice, the sacrifice that we lay down. See how David responds to the confidence of God's forgiveness. 
He wants to teach others about the Lord. He wants to sing of his righteousness and declare his praise. And he desires to offer a sacrifice and knows the Lord will not be pleased simply with a burnt offering. So what does he do? He offers himself as a sacrifice. It's his broken spirit, it's his contrite heart that he offers up to God as a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. Again, this is a true comfort uh, for sinners who, who know how broken they are before the Lord, that the Lord will not despise a broken and a contrite heart when they're brought before him. But he will not accept a sacrifice from those whose hearts are puffed up with pride and self-assurance. Just like it is written in the psalm just before this one, Psalm 50, uh, verses 8 to 15. If you want to take a look, it's just before. I'll read it. it. says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to, to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And so too David is calling upon the Lord in the day of his trouble, in the day of his sin. God delights in the sacrifice of thanksgiving and he doesn't need anything from us but is pleased when we bring our grateful praise to him. But if we're honest, sometimes we really aren't that grateful to the Lord. It's easy to live a thankless life, seeing that we uh, really always feel like we're entitled to the good things that come our way. Often I know that it's easy for me to take the salvation of God for granted, and I can begin to think that I can live life just trying to do good, trying to be good. But before the eyes of God, this will never suffice. We need something much greater than anything that I or you alone can bring. Why does God delight in the offering, the sacrifice of our broken hearts? Because he delights in the people who acknowledge him alone as their sufficiency. And it's in our brokenness that we learn to rely on the Lord and see the emptiness and everything else that we have turned to for wholeness. As seminarians, it's uh, a dangerous tendency that many of us have to develop a kind of intellectual pride uh, in our knowledge of theology and in the scriptures. It's easy for us to be puffed up in our self-perceived uh, superiority over those lesser believers in the churches that we serve. Well, they don't even know about the Greek and Hebrew grammatical fallacies, and certainly they, they can't comprehend the covenantal typology of the apostolic hermeneutic. We know the ins and outs of the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper, but we can still come proudly to the table as if we have earned our place there by our own merits. We can tend to equate our learning with spiritual maturity and become arrogant toward others. It's difficult for us to see our sin most of the time. And we can't offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God while our hearts are filled with pride. But the Lord comes to break us down so that he might build us back up in his grace. It reminds me of uh, the story, the movie that was recently made, Unbroken, Louis Zamperini, who 
the world sees this story as a man who was unbroken. Louis Zamperini, wow, how strong he was standing up under the, uh, the torture that he, that he endured in the war. But what they're missing is that the unbroken one is not Louis Zamperini because when he gets back, the man is a, is a, is a mess. He's a, he's a wreck. But the unbroken one is the one that he looks to when he is so downcast and so broken that he, can't even, he doesn't even know where to go to the true unbroken man, Jesus Christ. He's the one who is unbroken. And he's the one who builds us up when we are broken. And so with the reminder from this text, we can see afresh just how sinful we are and how desperately we need our Savior. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came and offered himself, his own life as a sacrifice, to be the very Savior that we need. The Son of God, whose heart never knew sin, was himself lowly. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that our debt of sin would be paid in full and that we might know the joy of his salvation. In Christ, even though we are filled with sin ourselves, we are counted as righteousness because of his perfect life of obedience in our place. By his wounds we are healed, and it was the sacrifice of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, that we see God's amazing goodness to his people, to Zion. And so in conclusion, in light of our sin and God's spirit and the sacrifice of gratitude that he calls us to, the truth still stands that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let us come to the Lord honestly with our sins. He knows them all already. Let us come to our God with broken hearts so that we might find the strength of the Spirit to walk in his way. And let us come to our Savior, the one who saved our souls with gratitude for the amazing salvation that he has purchased for us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your amazing grace to us in Christ. Help us not to underestimate how truly amazing that grace is, especially in light of our sin and what it cost you. Thank you, God, for your goodness to your people, Zion. I pray that you would build us up as we go out from this place today and that we might come to you with our sins and that we might know and be assured of your forgiveness and your favor toward us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.